1: Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to Real Vision. I think it's the first time you've been on, right? It is, yes. Thank you very much for having me. I don't know why it took so long, but anyway, you're here now. Exactly. Um, so just um, to let people know, just uh, give a bit of background about what you do, and then we'll sure. dig into your crypto journey just to bring everybody up to date.
0: Yeah, sure. So I uh, run the international business at Fidelity Digital Assets. So I joined in 2019, and I have a career in, uh, in commodities. So I started off as a commodities trader, managed uh, different commodity trading businesses, but really got the Digital asset bug over a period of years, but decided to transition to this full time uh, in around 2018. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. It's a journey. It's been a journey at Fidelity. We set up a client facing entity in uh, in 2019, um, and so we're expanding and charging full steam ahead.
1: So what attracted you to the space in the beginning? Talk me through when you first kind of learned about Bitcoin or, you know, what was your entry into the whole thing? And what was the light bulb moment for you?
0: Yeah, so it was actually from my brother. And my brother isn't in financial services, but he he has a knack of identifying sort of megatrends relatively early on. And so he was, you know, a huge proponent of the internet and was, you know, made a number of investments around that time. Um... I think it was around 2013, he was adamant that this was going to be enormous and that this was, you know, as relevant um for technology and society as the internet was. And he was, you know, persisting with me to try and take a look at it in more detail. And you know, life just gets in the way. And so I kind of half-heartedly sort of took a look a few times. Uh, and like any trader, you know, if you Buy a little bit of it, then all of a sudden you pay a lo- pay a lot more attention to it. So I did that in 2015, and I would say it was pretty pedestrian still at that point. I'd buy a bit, I'd sell a bit, uh, and it was really sort of the beginning of 2017 when we started to really take off. And you could just see the level of activity that was going on in the space. And I, you know, quote unquote, went down the proverbial rabbit hole. And so yeah, that was really the journey. And 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 at work at the time, I was running uh, the commodities trading desk for uh, an investment bank. And I approached my boss, and this is probably the summer of 2017, to ask, you know, this is really starting to take off here. We're starting to talk to clients about this, not because they necessarily want price exposure or they want services, but just because they're interested. And, you know, so what do you know, what do we how do we respond to this? You know, what is the bank's stance and what do we see our direction of travel? And the short answer was is that you know, there's nobody really looking at it. And so I thought that was a mistake. And so I proposed setting up a small research group just to look at what the the various opportunities were, you know, is that, you know, for a bank, is that prime services, is it custody, is it market access, you know, from a market's perspective, is it OTC market making? And, you know, then there were, you know, at the time we had this ICO boom. And so you had this enormous ICO treasuries, you know, do they help, need help risk managing that, you know, uh, m and advisory, that type of thing. And so it became apparent that that was really a full-time role. And so I transitioned into that full-time beginning of 2018 and, You know, over the next six to nine months, you know, it became increasingly apparent. You know, we also kind of topped out. We entered a sort of multi-year bear market, and so I think, I think to be honest, like a lot of the banks were just sort of thankful that it was going away. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, yeah, so it became pretty clear that it was going to be slow moving, and so decided to exit. Started speaking to Tom uh, very soon thereafter about what Fidelity's intentions were, and that really resonated me. It was a large scale traditional financial services organization but had a deep history of technology innovation and had been looking at the space going all the way back to 2014 so had already a very rich history within digital assets had been mining bitcoin consistently since 2015 etc and so this was support that really went to the very top of the house um you know and abigail johnson our, our chairperson and ceo um you know has been a long-standing supporter of the digital asset space um she was a a, a keynote speaker at Consensus in 2017, in May 2017, when the price was you know 1800 $1, bucks, uh, and so we're incredibly fortunate to have that level of, of support at the very top of the house because I think with, yeah, you know, it's less so now, but I think certainly back then, it was a, it's a very divisive subject. I mean, even now it's relatively divisive, but I think that you know there's a lot of education since then, and these types of decisions need to be made right at the very top of the house because. You know, if a bank or a large-scale financial intermediary is to enter um, this marketplace or start providing services, it's likely to be front page news on the FT, it's likely to be front page of the Wall Street Journal. And so you need buy-in at that kind of level. And I think that, you know, back then the you know, there were nexuses of 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 information and excitement, but they didn't permeate right to the very top of the house.
1: One one thing's interesting. I've known that traders have come into the space. There's a lot of people come from two areas, one from commodities. Right and one from um, emerging market FX. Yeah, because they're people who understand risk. Yes, that's and right. Vo- vol- and volatile assets and yeah. how to how to run risk with volatile assets because most people don't have that skill set. It's very different.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the you know a lot of it a lot of it is very similar. And you're right. I've I've noticed the same thing. And, you know, it is the, it is the sort of underlying volatility. There's the gap risk that involves There's one side of trades. And then all of a sudden there's just, you know, no bid or no offer in the market. And it's having to deal There's also as well. I think, you know, now that you're seeing, you know, a lot of cash trading versus futures trading and, you know, that is all something that commodities guys at least are very, very familiar with running cash versus derivatives and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's, um, it's a set that I think tees you up relatively well for this asset class.
1: You know what was fascinating is I started talking about the adoption and saying it reminded me a lot. I was at Goldman back in the late nineties, right? And the GSCI yep. had come out, and I was, you know, I was servicing hedge funds, so we were all talking about um, that and and how people can get involved. And then you wrote a whole piece on it. Talk me through this because it was bizarre because you'd come out exactly the same way and said, "Look, this is really similar. We've seen this before." Talk us through the paper you wrote because it was
0: interesting. Yeah, sure. So. Well, to me, you know, I look at the I look at the digital asset markets now, and I look at the setup that we had in the late '90s, early 2000s with commodities. And I so I joined uh, I joined um, my first trading desk in September 2001. Brent was trading sixteen dollars a barrel, and you know nobody really cared. You know, now a week later, nine eleven happened, and you know things kind of changed dramatically thereafter. But it, the setup involved it just you know it's almost like i you know and we're going through the same questions now people are asking but is this a real investable asset class does this have a place in a traditional diversified investment portfolio and these are questions that we we went through with commodities 20 years ago and like we we now know that you know pretty much every you know managed uh portfolio has some allocation uh to commodities as a diversifier and so it's just interesting to me and you know the setup that we had back then and the setup that we have right now and the parallels I think are just really striking. and so a lot of people don't know well maybe don't remember this but prior to the early 2000s I mean, most investment portfolios didn't have an allocation to commodities. they were really corporate right. hedging markets. um and then we saw a series of what i would call product regulatory Market access and infrastructure developments that really sort of laid the foundation and enabled institutional participation. It didn't necessarily drive the institutional participation, but at least you know it put it in a place where you had a sort of basic foundation upon which you could build an investment case you know and fast forward to today, and I think that's exactly where we are with digital assets, and I think it started you know going right back. i mean if you look at the sort of regulatory environment and the reason why I think it's useful to look at that back then is because it's pertinent now with um, for digital assets, you know, we were coming out of the the you know 1980s. Obviously, saw a huge deregulatory push um, in, in, in the UK, you know, known as the Big Bang. We were sort of seeing the same in the US. At the same time, uh, commodities markets were getting deregulated globally. So, oil came off uh, fixed pricing in 1983. US Nat gas was deregulated in in 85. US power in 92. And so, you had these, you know, London and New York as a result of these deregulatory trends emerged as these global financial capitals at a time when we were going through enormous financialization and massive growth in in financial services. And you know, around that time, and you know, if you're a Goldman, you'll remember, but the, you know, we started to see banks increasingly push into more assets, more markets, more jurisdictions, just because uh, you know, quite frankly, there was a lot of money to be made. And at the time, you know, and you mentioned the GSEI, you know, I think that was really a seminal moment because prior to that, if you were an institution looking to get broad based price exposure to a basket of commodities, you had to build that yourself. And building that yourself really meant managing a basket of physically delivered futures, you know, and that has its own set of risks. And these are all expiring at different times of the month on different exchanges, in different time zones, all over the world, and all the operational burden and risk that that entails. And so the GSCI was just. It was it was great. It just packaged this all up. It was effectively, you know, commodities price exposure as a service. You enter one bilateral swap with Goldman or whichever other bank, you know, were providing uh, support for that index, and all of a sudden you had, um, you know, uh, financialized, derivatized exposure to a broad basket of of commodities. And at the same time, there were other kind of like product innovations occurring around that time. You know, in November 2004, we saw the introduction of the first single asset passive commodities uh, exchange-traded product, GLD, you which know, now has $60 billion worth of AUM and 30% of the market. And ar- around that time as well, we were going through this period of the development of the infrastructure as well. Um, a little-known company uh, called ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange at the time, acquired the International Petroleum Exchange uh, in 2001. And so they introduced side-by-side trading of uh, oil futures um electronically alongside open outcry within 4 years they shuttered the open outcry exchange and it went pure electronic and that was replicated across a number of different exchanges and markets and the importance of this or relevance of this is it it leveled out the information asymmetries that existed it replaced opacity with transparency it meant that you had this democratization of market data and you know again up until this point you know we hadn't had like that you know institutional interest and this all these developments came at a time when the investment case for commodities was really quite compelling. And I think you can split it down into three different pillars, if you will. And the first was diversification. So nobody because these were a completely separate asset class that had their own uh, supply and demand fundamentals, um, you you know, it, it, you know modern portfolio theory 101, you introduce an uncorrelated asset into a diversified portfolio and you get net benefits. Harry Markowitz in 50, 52 said diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And the second, the second pillar of that is the positive expected return. So, because a healthy commodity market is typically in backwardation, what that means is, is the unrolling of those positions in order for those, uh, that price exposure not to mature. You're selling a prompt contract and buying a deferred contract. If the market is in backwardation, you're therefore collecting that roll yield. And this, at the time, was somewhere in the region of five to ten percent. So, not only do you not need the market to go up to make money, you're, you're you're getting that diversification, but you don't even need the market to go up to make money. And the third thing. Um, that was happening around that time, there was just this uh, incredible bull case for commodities writ large. And this was owing to um, the 10th five-year plan issued by the CCP in China. And so one of the objectives was to transfer 40 million workers from the rural areas into the cities. Now, 40 million workers. And so bear in mind, that's not Forty million people, because then you've got children and you've got elderly people that will go with them. It's forty million workers, and so that was the working that was the working population of Germany at that point in time. And think about all the industrial and social infrastructure you need to create that type of the infrastructure for in which they can live, and so that's roads, it's power plants, it's hospitals, it's schools, it's sewer systems, it's factories, and all the rest of it. And so this was a um, you know a uh, a forewarned demand demand, demand yeah. It was a demand. It's a demand shock. shock, yeah. And we can see that the primary energy demand uh, almost doubled in that five-year period. And so, huge, huge macro shock that was advertised in advance in a way that only a control economy can do. And so, and the, the third, the, the the last thing on this point is that you know you had this sort of very supportive macro environment. So we're in the middle of a bear market. Um, the tech bubble had burst. Um, You know, equities have been selling off for a a, a period of time. And, you know, at the time as well, I think, you know, so you look at now, so the CAIA Association has put out data saying that 6% of global investable assets were allocated to alts in 2003. You fast forward to 2018, that had risen to 12%. So we were in this environment where people were happy to look at alts. And
1: alts, in this case, not alts as in crypto, but alts as in
0: alternative assets. Exactly Right. Yes. In the traditional yeah. sense. And so the result of all that was, you know, all these things combined is that we then just saw this enormous influx of institutional capital into the space. And so from 2000 to 2002, there was pretty much no institutional investment into commodities. And then from 2003 to 2010, we saw uh, in that eight year period, we had around $400 billion pour in. And so just a, a massive amount of capital allocated. And again, like, I think if we can look at Digital assets right now. I mean, let's let's look at those one by one. So we look at the product suite. You know, in the U.S., you know, we had yes, we had GBTC in 2013. You know, there are there are issues with GBTC, closed-end fund, blah blah blah. Um, we saw. December 2017, we see the introduction of the CME Bitcoin futures. You know, December 20, we see the launch of CME Bitcoin options. You know, in Feb 21, we get Ether futures. You know, since during that period, we've had MicroStrategy enter the market. That's created indirect vehicles, um, you know, both for equities and for bonds that give indirect price exposure to, to Bitcoin. Um, we've had a futures-based ETF launched in the US. You know, Canada, we saw um, last year the first. A uh, North American ETF launched in Europe. We've had, um, you know, CoinShares since 2015. Deribit, the first real kind of um, options market launched in 2016. And you know, we've now had in Europe we've had ETPs uh, approved in Germany and Switzerland and Sweden. Um, you know, Fidelity International launched uh, a Fidelity Bitcoin ETP just a couple of weeks ago. And you know, globally we now have you know a number of private funds that will give passive price exposure. Ah, uh, to Bitcoin, and so the product suite has definitely developed. I think significantly over the last five years. Let's say, you know, and then you sort of contrasting the regulatory and market access um, situation. You know, as with commodities in, in the nineties and 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 the early two thousands, I think that that's improving dramatically. If we look at sort of retail access, I mean, even just through PayPal, Square, Venmo, and Revolut. We've given market access to over 500 million users, you know, and that's not having to go and open a new account. That is an existing, cli- you know, a client that has all of a sudden they have access to this marketplace um, through an app they already have on their phone, you know, and through institu- for institutions, we've seen the introduction of dedicated institutional liquidity venues. Um, LMAX Digital, as an example, TPI Cap, the world's largest interdealer broker, is launching their venue in the first half of this year. Fidelity will actually be providing the the custody infrastructure and the settlement services for that venue. Um, you know, many primes we've, uh, are now offering support for the CME Futures. This was not the case five years ago at launch. You know, that has been a journey in and of itself. I mean, the interesting thing here is I think that regulation. Um, has 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 stymied the development or the adoption of digital assets by some of these large- scale financial institutions, less because you know, and we saw with commodities um, that was more to do with deregulation here. it's it's a lack of regulatory clarity. Um, and Boston Consultant Group has a great stat on this. From two thousand and nine to two thousand and sixteen, European and North American banks were collectively fined three hundred and twenty one billion dollars by regulators. I mean, just an eye watering number. And what this means is that banks now need perfect regulatory clarity before they're prepared to act. Um and so I think that you know we are seeing steps in the right direction. Obviously, the OCC put out um, two interpretive letters stating the banks could custody crypto assets. We've seen in in Europe the introduction of or I should say the the introduction of 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 Mika, the markets in crypto assets was a draft regulatory framework that will bring the provision of certain crypto asset services. Uh, under the purview of local regulators. So that's expected to, you know, conclude its review period in the next 2 to 3 months, let's say, and then be in force, you know, 24 months thereafter. But that will simplify the process, a give institutions clarity but B simplify the process of doing business. Right now we're having to deal with this um very patchwork regulatory environment. And that will enable us to get regulated in one jurisdiction and then passport our activities through the EU block. So I think that that's an incredibly important piece of Um, piece of legal framework. Um, So point being, though, is that I think there's still significant gains that can be made with regard to market access and institutions just by uh, giving that clarity to banks and other large-scale financial intermediaries. And then just in terms of infrastructure, I mean, in 2017, we could see five to 10 price differences between two exchanges in the same country. I mean, it's one thing if there were exchanges where one of them had like capital controls and so on and so forth. But these would be two exchanges based in California. Um, and so exchanges were going down all the time. I mean, this was, you know, it was not institutional grade or quality. Um, and that has, I mean, the the progress that we've made on that front has just been staggering, I think. You know, 2018, obviously, Fidelity announced the launch of its custody business. I think that was a watershed moment. Uh, you know, now we've seen another of other credible alternatives. And you know, there's just been a, a lot of development. I mean, especially in, in terms of lending and borrowing. And I remember in my former role looking at the lending and borrowing space, saying, "How is nobody doing this?" Uh, sure enough, now five years on, um, you know, it's it's a very well catered for market. Um, I think importantly as well, the quality of data and research has just come on vastly as well both from a fundamental standpoint, but then also on-chain data and market data as well. And all that stuff is needed for institutions in order to be able to do this amount of research and due diligence before they will uh, make an allocation to the space. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make is, look back at 2017, the product suite, the market access, the infrastructure, it just wasn't really in a place that was of in, it wasn't ready for institutions but it's hard to argue that that's the case now and i think that's a very important distinction so what
1: you're kind of drawing the parallel is we're pretty much at the kind of 1998 period or so where suddenly you could start trading commodities institutionally and adding them to a portfolio in a way that works somewhere whether it's 99 or 2002
0: you know that that kind of period where it started to that's happen. right, and I think that you know again, you look back at those sort of the three pillars of that investment thesis for commodities, it was diversification. Well, you know we have an asset class here that is also uncorrelated. I mean, people have pointed to you know the uptick in correlation in the pandemic crash and things like that, but as we you know in periods of high market stress, that's always the case,
1: yes, I mean, the correlations go to one in these kind of risk events, right Everything is yeah. correlated in a risk event. Also, what I notice about Crypto is; it has a passing correlation to stuff, passing to yep. the yield curve, passing to rates, passing to equity, but it's not the overall correlation. Because if you look at over long enough time horizon, it's not correlated to anything. I think that's the key point, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly right. And and people will kind of you know try and tie that flag to its mast when it when it's convenient. Um, and to your point, you know, in periods of high market stress, this is this is just what we should expect. Um, I think, interestingly, as well, looking at those other two. know pillars of that investment thesis is the positive expected return you know in commodities that was the role yield you know now we have these developed lending markets you know increasingly we have a greater proportion of total crypto market cap is proof of stake you know with its own kind of yield generation um and then there's the you know the bullish fundamentals and like you know to be clear you know i think it's beyond the the remit of this conversation to go through the full bull case for for crypto at large but but um, if you
1: believe in network adoption, it basically gives you a positive expected return that's quite ridiculous.
0: Simple yeah, as that. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, interestingly, um, you know, we can see from this chart here. Uh, this, this, I would love to take credit for this work. This was actually put together by Jurian Timmer, who's the director yeah, love, of global macro. I love Jurian. He's, he's been on Real Vision a few times. Good guy. Oh, is that right? Yeah he's, yeah, he's 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 great. And it's been great. You know, he's obviously approached this from a a dispassionate standpoint. Um, and I think that you know sometimes you know where you know, in the weeds, but it's great to see the journey that somebody goes on, you know, as a highly respected macro thinker and just coming at this with fresh eyes, dispassionately, you know, and 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 coming to the conclusions that he has. But one of the one of the and he's he's come up with a couple of different um you know valuation models uh for Bitcoin particularly and he's looked at this from the supply side of the demand side. But the chart we have here just looks at Bitcoin addresses with a balance of greater than a dollar and mapping that to mobile phone um, adoption. And so, you know, you can see we're 13 years in, and on this S-curve, we're just at that point where it's about to lift off on the chart on the left, which is the linear curve. We look at the uh, exponential curve on the right-hand side, and you can see that we're tracking it remarkably well. Um, And so, you know, if you believe in that sort of continued adoption, I mean, that is your fundamental bull case right there.
1: Yeah, I I just wrote a piece for Global Macro Investor over the weekend. You know, I've been, as you know, been using Metcalf's Law for this. Yeah, And from my numbers using the crypto, I think it's crypto.com, blockchain.com numbers, um, there's 300 million users. It's growing currently about 185% a year in all of crypto, which is twice the speed the internet was growing um, at the same kind of phase, Fi- um, looking at the number of years after there was 5 million users. So right. that's how we kind of anchored it it's growing at twice the speed because obviously it's it's a network built on top of a network of networks so mobile yeah. phones and data then internet then crypto so you get you know i think it's called reed's law which makes it even more exponential it gets
0: all ludicrous um it's just yeah i mean as as i say the internet didn't have the internet
1: no exactly right, right.
0: it had the mobile
1: phone network and
0: the landline yes. network
1: but you know it, it's it's all of the kind of thing also what i did is i had a bit of a breakthrough this weekend Is I try to figure out okay what is the, what drives price in crypto. And I went through all of the kind of on-chain data, everything, try to look at it, supply, demand, hash rates, all of this stuff, and basically it was really simple. It was total volume, daily volume, right, and 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 that's that's trading volume or on-chain volume adjusted volume. So that's the right. cleaned up, so you don't so the, the proper volumes, not the wash trading. Yep. Um and then um essentially multiplied by um number of active users. Right. And okay. it fits the price for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Polkadot, XRP, everything. It's it's really? exactly okay. it doesn't give you a lead, but it exactly shows the price. And I'm like, okay, this is really interesting because it, it kind of is all about that adoption effect,
0: really. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, and you know, it's it's it definitely feels it definitely feels like um you know that level of adoption is is really stepped up a gear you know just over the last three to six months. I mean, I would say that, I mean we talked about this just before we started, but you know, I would say a year ago to eighteen months ago, we were inundated with people trying to when the market's going up, we're just flat out trying to get people onboarded um, because there's such high demand for our products and services.
1: Now, just before we go, I just want to dig into that. So back then, what was that? Family offices mainly. Was it who? Who was that? You know, obviously there is hedge funds and other players as well. Talk us through the players and how that's morphing because I think that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, sure. So I think I think back then, you're right. It was definitely there was some crypto natives, but then there was a lot of sort of new new entrance to the space. It was more on the family office and hedge fund side, and you know you you can see that just because the. You know, and it was really where the investment decision was being made relatively close to the principal, or at least by somebody who had um you know, been employed by the principal to manage their money on their behalf. So like family offices, hedge funds. and and you so you saw that adoption relatively quickly. They were able to act a lot more um in a lot more timely fashion. You know, to your point, you know what we've seen over the last six months is there's definitely more in the way of conversations from, you know, the big banks, but then also, the largest sort of pensions endowments, you know, people are really starting to sit up and pay attention. And I think that, again, you know, back then, the the sort of interest in products and services was definitely correlated, to quite heavily correlated to flat price. So markets going up, um, you know, people want on platform as quickly as possible. Markets coming off, you know, rather than responding the same day, you might get a response in two days time. You know, it just slowed down a bit. The phone would be ringing less than it was. Um, and so and th- th- just over the last three to six months, well, I would say really sort of the beginning of this year, it feels like that shifted a little bit. We've obviously seen, you know, move from 69 down to 34. That ha- really hasn't abated the demand. And I think that, you know, really there could be one or two I mean, reasons. I've had yeah. nobody, not one person, even care.
1: Right, yeah. On yeah. Twitter, yeah. there's noise. Not one institution, they're like, we get it. It does this. This yeah. is a good opportunity.
0: Well, that's right, and I think at the, I think you know it, it could be for one or two reasons. It could be that it's the beginning of the year, and you get that kind of January effect where people are looking forward year ahead, a bit more long-term strategic thinking, and you know it's like they're looking at this over a longer time horizon. But I think more importantly, what's happened is we've gone through this rebrand of crypto. Like it was crypto, now it's kind of you know 12 months ago people weren't talking about the metaverse people weren't talking about web3 that's been that's night and day and i think that it's almost like the global investment community is has sort of woken up and now they finally understand what this is really for and so it, i think that the security and 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 confidence in the investment thesis is just at a different level and to your point they now just understand okay well we now get the investment thesis and yeah it just does this every now and then
1: and you must see that and i've seen it I mean, one of the things I did was seeing the need for product is I started a fund of funds investing right. in, in digital asset hedge funds, because that's a typical institutional product at yep. this stage in the cycle. What I am seeing is, as this narrative shifts to Web3, it's no longer a Bitcoin-only world. In yeah. fact, people kind of want a broader exposure. And I yeah. know you guys have moved towards ETH and, and stuff like that as well. How, how are you seeing those conversations develop?
0: Yeah, I would say that so the beginning of the last year, we were we were Bitcoin only and 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 more less because we were ideologically maximalist in the sense that we thought that you know there's one coin to rule them all. It was really just that so we're an institutional only business. So we don't have um a retail offering. So you know, we have like certain minimums, you know, unless unless you're below five million dollars of uh you know assets, you know, we need to understand like the path to get to that kind of level. And so it's, it's a different cohort of investors. And up until that point in time, there just hadn't been any interest in other assets. 98% of the conversations that we were having were Bitcoin only. And that definitely shifted. And I think part of that was the, you know, obviously we saw the reemergence of ESG concerns for Bitcoin. I think, you know, from Feb to May of last year, Bitcoin dominance went from 65% to 40%. You know, that obviously meant that we saw this enormous outperformance of alts. So while Bitcoin was tra- tracking sideways, alts went from $500 million of, uh, of, of value to $1.5 trillion in a relatively short space of time, and people follow the money. And so, but what we, I, I think that's right, though. And I, I think, you know, part and parcel of that also is that everybody starts with Bitcoin. You know, it's relatively easy to understand. Uh, and once you've kind of wrapped your head around Bitcoin, the natural progression is, well, what else is there? Um, and so I think we're definitely uh, seeing some of that. So we, in the middle of last year, made the decision to transition from a Bitcoin-only support model to a more multi-asset support model. And you're right, we'll be launching support for Ethereum at some point in in Q2, and then thereafter we'll, you know, we'll have a a, a committee that will approve new assets for 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 coin support. We're never going to be, you know, listing three, four, five hundred assets. You're never going to be um, Binance. <laughs> we're never going to be Binance, To be clear. Um, you know, so we're likely to leave out things that are a brand new because there might be some code or hask ricks that hasn't come to light. We're likely to leave out things where we don't see a ton of we're likely to leave out privacy coins as an example because we don't believe in the use case. And then things that have, you know, less in the way of developer activity some of the meme coins were likely to like, leave support uh, out for those as well. But yeah, I mean, the, the intention is definitely to ramp up the the assets that we support.
1: I've definitely seen, I mean, if I think of the last two weeks alone, I was contacted by three of the largest asset managers in the world, of which right. this is the fourth conversation with their investment teams who are all setting up digital asset groups. So this is a shift away <clears throat> from family offices and crypto curious firms like what are we trying to do? You know, I would I would do presentations for investment banks, you know, Goldman and a bunch of others. Now it's like these are the big boys who are now calling up. What what are you seeing? Who are the people calling you to say, "Listen, Chris, how do we do this"?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a similar story. I mean, there's there's definitely activity, um, you know, in the pension space. It's definitely active. The banks, are, I, I think, somewhat, you know, the activity there has. I think they're trying to work out how much they can do. Until the arrival of things like Mika, um, and there's actually, you know, the development that we've seen on that front, although, um, you know, a lot of it's not public yet, it's definitely been very rapid, like surprisingly rapid. Um, and so I think there's definitely there's definitely a push in there's definitely a push in that direction, and then, you know, seeing increasing activity out of the sovereign wealth funds and so on and so forth. So, you know, again, it 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 definitely feels very different. You know, now and, as opposed to sort of twelve to eighteen months, and
1: they don't seem to be phased by the recent sell-offs. You know that, so they're not saying it's down fifty percent. You know, I'm nervous about this. You're picking up the
0: opposite, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, it definitely feels like this is more consistent interest than, and I think that's the that's the difference. Is that you know back then because it was a sort of less concrete, less secure investment thesis. It was this sort of financial curiosity. You know, when it died down or when it tailed off. know, so did the interest, whereas this definitely feels a lot more concrete. I mean, I'd be curious to hear from the conversations that you're having, is that sort of similar, um, is that a similar experience?
1: Yes. Um, I haven't seen anybody particularly freaked out, um, in fact, at all. A couple of retail people, you know, it was more volatile than they, they were used to. Most others are kind of, most others are not really concerned about it. And institutions seem to be, I mean, I get texts from giant pension funds, text, t- WhatsApp messages, they've all turned into this now. Right. They're like, oh, this is this is fantastic. I just need to get my asset allocation committee to agree the next chunk of capital because I want to put it in. So for me, it feels very different. Time will tell, I guess. Chris, listen, fantastic to catch up with you. This is a lot of fun, a lot of interesting information from here. Because a lot of people don't really understand the institutional side of it. And you and I have grown up in that world. And its I think it's interesting for people to learn from it. Chris, brilliant, my friend. Great to speak to you. Perfect. We'll get you back in Real Vision soon. Awesome. Thanks very much
0: for having me. Appreciate it. Cheers.
1: What I really wanted to learn from Chris was where we are in institutional adoption, the histories of the past, and what we can learn about where this is going. Chris brilliantly articulated the commodity cycle of the 2000s and how it applies particularly to the digital asset market now. I think the surprise was is he's having the same conversations as I am with the world's biggest asset managers, and nobody is phased by the volatility in the space. In fact, they look at it as an opportunity. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020 we launched RealVision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, RealVision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And RealVision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to RealVision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.